All right, guys, and here we go. We're live. Hey, what's up, everyone? It's Maria and Michael back again with another PT Soaps. Hey, Michael, how's it going? Good. How you doing? It's uh, it's a long time no see. We're going remote again today. We're doing it remote. Busy times during the beginning part of the week and still kind of continuing. But you're off, so you're loving the weekend, right? Oh, very much so. Uh, I'm still working on my shed in the backyard. And uh, <laughs> it's not going to be a two-day weekend. It's going to be a four-day weekend, which is great. Oh, that's even better. Mm-hmm. Well, I hope nothing happens, you know, during your long weekend because we're going to talk about falls. So, you know, first of all, thanks everyone for continuing to listen. We're up to 872 listens or plays. Uh, I hope we break a thousand by the end of this uh, podcast today. What do you think, Michael? I'm optimistic. Um, guys, just keep listening. We love it. Uh, we're having a great time. I hope you guys are too. And, and, and of course, you're learning something. Um, but always refer to your primary care physician or healthcare provider when it comes to any kind of medical issue. Exactly. And thank you to all the new listeners, our peers out there, all of the students at UNM that we're finding is joining as well. Um, we miss Cameron, our students, we do. now back in the classroom. And so we're having to, you know, get back to our normal endurance and routine as well. But let's get to it. So, like I said, we're going to talk about falls today and falls happen. You know, there's a wide range of events that can happen wide range of ages but to be you know specific in our talk today i think we want to say that you know primarily falls occur in most 65 and older adults and that can be attributed to a lot of different events i just want to point out that there are events like that are intrinsic which intrinsic events uh, or reasons for falls include maybe your age muscle weakness visual changes your current medical history or your past medical history, fear avoidance, uh, neurological changes, sensation, or you know there are events too like that are extrinsic, your home environment, lighting, assistive devices or lack of de- assistive devices. And these are some of the topics or questions that are brought up during our assessment with a patient to just identify hopefully assess and hopefully provide education on the need to strengthen their home environment or to get an assistive device, put in some nightlights, area rugs, great ideas to talk about with patients. At the end of the day, it's pretty multifactorial, right, Maria? There's a lot of things that you just mentioned on the list that are both intrinsic and extrinsic. Uh, One of the things that you mentioned first was the muscle weakness. That's something we typically see for those that are over the age of 65 and older, right? Exactly. The, the term that is usually described as that muscle weakness is sarcopenia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that is defined as lower muscle mass and lack of performance. So, you know, I think if everyone were to Dr. Google that sarcopenia, you know, they would see some comparative uh, uh, images of what the muscle looks like that is of normal girth or size, healthy. And then sarcopenia where that is lower muscle girth or picture of that tissue. And it would imply that a patient might have, excuse me, lower muscle mass or inactivity. Right, yeah, it's a huge factor. So that's why strength training, resistance training to be more specific is paramount. Um, I think Mm -hmm. one thing that's important to mention when we talk about sarcopenia, 
which again, just to reiterate, is the loss of muscle mass and lack of that muscular performance, you tend to lose type two muscle fibers, which are those power fibers. Um, sometimes we don't think about this, but if someone has to stand up from a sitting position, that requires type two muscle fibers. It's not just the momentum. And this is considering someone who isn't using their hands to help assist them to stand up from a sitting position. They need to explode into that upright position from the sitting position, and that requires type two muscle fibers, which is what we see um, a decrement or loss of with sarcopenia. So very important to consider when prescribing or developing an exercise program with those that are 65 years of age or older. Well, and you know, too, getting up from a chair, you know, we take for granted mm-hmm. how often just in my day, my four hours that I've already put in, I have been up and down all day mm-hmm. so far. And that doesn't even include like my morning before I come here, how right. often. So it is, it's so important for patients to maintain their level of independence and That's getting up from one. a chair yeah. is like one of the first things, right? Dude, Maria, what you just said is their number one goal. They do, they want to maintain a level of independence and when they lose that, it's catastrophic and it's a downward spiral most times than not. And that's where depression, immobility, paralyzation, right? Well, not, you know, not in the literal sense, but um, people don't want to do anything because they're fearful. And they're even more fearful if they had fallen, right? Right. Yeah. I mean, if you were to imagine this like X and Y graph, and if there's increased age and there is decline, so whether that's hospitalization, that's because of illness, as you get older and then there's greater functional decline, that slope is it gets higher so it's harder to overcome that and get back to that prior level of function so coming to therapy for like maintenance for assessment is so important because we can identify these and also use assessment tools to guide them to help them reach and maintain their norms so you know i think the big thing is the questions when they come into the clinic it may be you know have you fallen are you afraid of falling do you use any type of assistive device? All right, well, how often do you use it? Do you use furniture to walk or do you use the walls to walk, that's right? A, that's a big red flag for me when I hear someone doing that. Um, I don't know if I ever told you this, Maria. I remember, this was maybe a few years ago in my career, maybe maybe seven, eight years ago. I recall speaking to someone and I had, I had asked him exactly that. Hey, are you a, are you a wall furniture walker? Uh, Use the walls. I mean, do you brace yourself to help you to get from point A to point B? And they said, as a matter of fact, I am. And I had a near fall. I caught myself and my hand actually went through the drywall. They were stuck in the wall, literally, um, simply because uh, they had balance issues. And, And guys, I think that's really important to distinguish. I think when we're talking about this particular topic is we're talking about the balance in the fall patient, not the patient that has dizziness or vestibular disorders. That's a completely different talk and topic altogether. We're just speaking about those that have overall deconditioning and those who haven't used those balance centers, like the somatosensory sensor um, that we find uh, throughout our body, which tells our body where it is in space, excuse me, our brain where our body is in space. That's the patient that we're focusing on today. Mm-hmm. And, you know, too, with that first initial look-see of the patient, we are examining them right when they get up from that chair 
in the waiting room. Absolutely. We're taking a good look at what their body frame looks like, what their initial step is, because they don't really initially think that we're watching them. You know, everyone wants to perform high, right? When you ask them to do something, Mm -hmm. but it's when you catch them in the moment that they're not aware of that you can get a good, true assessment of what they look like. And then two, like I said, that good subjective. So this is what lays out all of your critical thinking skills to develop like a good working hypothesis. Do you Um, ever, oh, I'm sorry, Marie. Oh, no, no, that's okay. No, that's okay. I was going to ask is, is, you know, before we even bring them back many times in the clinic, at least I hope, um, we do some sort of clinometric, right? We do some sort of intake form and that gives us a, a, a pretty good baseline as to where they are based on the questionnaire that they use. The one questionnaire that I've been introduced to, and I think you have too, through one of our continuing education courses is something called the state independent questionnaire, which is basically 12 questions. And, um, they get nitty gritty and they start talking about, you know, standing up, sitting down, et cetera. But if you have a score that's greater than four, that indicates that you're a fall risk. And that is a really good metric to use that you could use on the outtake. Once you've actually finished your, not just your assessment, but your intervention to see if your intervention interventions have been affected. Do you utilize any kind of clinometrics at all, aside from what we just mentioned, if, if at all? Uh, no, actually, besides more of my PT assessments, you know, once I'm with mm-hmm. them in the room, you know, we're part of an EMR that is epic. Right. And we also utilize products like Photo. Again, like I have no connection to either of those products. <laughs> However, those are our standardized tools that we use here. I think another questionnaire that we both ran across, and I don't have much information, is the ABC questionnaire. Oh, yeah. Right? Mm-hmm. Um, and that may be something of future discussion as well. But I think the big tools that I utilize, and this helps me with goal setting, are going to be my assessment tools, such as the 30 seconds sit to stand, because I can lay out, first of all, it's quick, it's effective. I can show them what the norms are. And then most of the time, this turns right into an exercise for them. Mm. So they can identify the weakness, they see what they need to do, and right away they know, okay, I'm gonna work on this at home. So, you know, like for me, or for you, Michael, do you have any like quick screens that if you're crunch for time, or if you have limited time with the patient, what would be like your quick balance screens? The ones that I've referred to and that I've, I've done is exactly the one that you just mentioned, plus two others. Um, one is the four-stage balance test, which is okay. It's quick and easy. It's efficient, but it's static, so it doesn't tell me a lot what's happening in real time during movement or functional movement patterns. The four-stage balance test, test also indicates if you're a fall risk. The other one that I utilize is the timed up and go. Now, I think it's worth saying that some of these tests that we just mentioned, um, they're for the low-level patient. Um, not that every person that is over the age of 65 is considered quote-unquote low-level, but choose your tests discriminately. Um, make sure that they actually apply to the patient population that you're working with. I think that's important because there's other standardized t- tests that you could utilize, but they're a little bit more lengthy, time-consuming, and we could talk about those here momentarily. But those are the ones that I use, Maria. Yeah, I mean, I think the four, I, I agree. Those are my quick go-tos if I'm in a time crunch. Because again, 
you can see the product, you know the weakness, there's your intervention accordingly. These are products that are put out by the CDC. Mm-hmm. So I think they come back with a lot of good foundational research and knowledge to say, hey, uh, your four stage balance, uh, you did not perform three out of the four positions, which suggests that you're at risk for falls. And like for me, I feel like there's progression to this. So. I am definitely an outside of the box thinker. I work in the box and then I step right out of it to identify how do we progress this. So like for a tug, you know, the objective for a timed up and go tug test is to stand up, walk as fast and as safe as possible, 10 feet, turn around and come right back down. Well, there's steps to progress that, which would include walking with a cup of water. Again, get your functional norms and identify how quick they can do that both with and without that cup of water. Mm-hmm. So, you know, again, I just I see there's progression in it. Uh, it's taking that time to go those next steps. And then a patient can see benefit because how often do we walk with a hot cup of coffee from the counter to the seat? Or I know, we walk to the living room. I know you do quite a bit, Maria. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> you drink your coffee. I'm not a coffee drinker, but I know you need your coffee, right? Brewing that hot brew throughout the day, yeah. <laughs> right. <laughs> But taking those next steps too for like more standardized tests that are a little bit lengthy, you know, maybe that's time spent in the next visit because then you can do farther, further assessment and you can identify their gait or you can see what their arm swing is like. And it, it is, it's quite a bit more dynamic because these are functional things that happen throughout the day, head turns. Um, and so just to kind of name some of the things that I'm pulling all those tests um, or those topics from, from the test, uh, I'm looking at the dynamic gait test, the Berg, Tinetti. Um, again, those are all great assessment tools to, to just measure up how they live in more of the dynamic world that we live in. Speaking of the dynamic world, function's really where it's at. And um, there's mm-hmm. another test that I was introduced to not too long ago by a local clinician here in the city that we live in. And um, he had told me that one test that he'll utilize, but this is really more for the dizzy and vestibular patient, is the functional gait assessment. But I don't think it's necessarily pigeonholed for that particular population set. It could be utilized for so many different people. Well, and when you were talking to me a little bit about that test, one of the things that was brought up, right, was walking backwards. 100%. Yeah. And... So I thought that was a really good idea. Someone else brought up the walking backwards to me in my Parkinson's world of uh, clientele. And just doing some research, uh, I found a journal article in the journal of geriatric called, called the three meter backwards walk and retro fall assessment. And its objective was really to identify if there is benefit from using retro or backwards walking in preventative for falls and when you do think about how often do you maybe take a step backwards to get out of someone's way or you step up backwards to take that cup of coffee to the seat and the test did say that in people that are walking faster than three seconds on the three meter backwards walk test were unlikely to have falls whereas people like slower than 4.5 seconds mm-hmm. were likely to have reported falls. So I just want to identify that walking backwards, you know, getting closer to that three seconds in the three meter walk test is more beneficial 
than if someone scored closer to 4.5 seconds mm -hmm. uh, walking backwards. And, you know, too, that's walking backwards, but we also will assess someone's walking speed, you know, just with a 10 meter walking test. Mm -hmm. And to like, what are the norms for that? So we know what to compare, you know, ideally, just from what the National Institute of Health, they report that the average gate speed is 0.94 meters per second to 1.38 meters per second. And now there are more specific there. Uh, descriptions of what the time should be, but ideally that's what we're looking for. Mm -hmm. And the tug is a wonderful way to at least get an idea of what it should be, right? Considering a fall risk, but there are statistical norms for age and gender. Exactly. Oh, oh, Maria, no, I wanted to insert one point that I thought was very important to at least mention uh, when we were talking about retro walking or walking backwards. When do mm -hmm. most falls occur? It's usually when you're backing up or turning, at least within this population set. And you see mm -hmm. that uh, you see that time and time again, particularly in the hospital. It's usually when it, and, it ha yeah. and it usually happens in the bathroom. Why? Because we have to turn and we have to go backwards. So very important well, step. That is the highest place for falls is the bathroom. Mm -hmm. And there's many reasons for that too. It. There's many reasons for that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. No, I think those are really good takeaways is to identify that maybe put walkward, walking backwards in your assessment as a PT, as a patient coming into the clinic, or if you're at home checking to see how well, or if you have fear of taking a step backwards, then that way it might apply, hey, maybe I should go check in with my therapist that I haven't seen in a few years or a few months and just have a, a an updated refresher. But I do want to point out that because of falls, there are numerous deaths. According to the CDC, there are 36,000 deaths due to falls in patients or uh, clients that are older than 65. And in 2020, there were three minutes three million visits to the emergency room for visits costing which we all know medicare kind of runs the roost of 29 million dollars in 2020 that's a lot of money spent that's a lot of visits that's a lot of time mm -hmm. that can be preventable we could certainly minimize it correct mm -hmm. I, because I, too the injuries that you know result from mm -hmm. that are hip fractures or multiple traumas that can occur as well. And that's where I was going to go with this next is I, when you had said that there's 36,000 deaths due to falls that are um, in people that are greater than 65 years or older, it makes me go, ah, is it because of the fall that they, um, they died? Or is it because of some, some sort of consequence of the fall? And more than likely, it's a consequence of the fall, not the fall itself. I don't know if it's necessarily blunt head trauma, um, but it's likely a sequelae or consequence of the fall, like a hip fracture, and then the steady decline that follows. Mm -hmm. Does that sound accurate? Right. I mean, like, right, we don't know what came first. Mm -hmm. But I think the big thing is that there are a lot of tools out there that we can use to prevent whether you assess them on your own or you do follow up with your physician or physical therapist to provide those assessments. Guys, I'd like to just back up a second. Um, a lot of these tests that we're administering, we just need to highlight again that this is for the person that feels a little unsteady. Uh, they have some balance issues. Maybe they have a previous fall. This is not anything that's related to the dizzy or vestibular person. Um, I think we need to consider and rule out 
other things too that might be causing their fall and that's where the history comes back into play i know i'm a little bit out of order here but um as far as our flow in today's conversation but i think we need to make sure that there aren't any medical conditions that might be lending itself to the fall the big ones for me would be cardiac conditions like atrial fibrillation maybe there's some orthostatic stuff going on um perhaps they have a peripheral neuropathy and that's causing them to fall as well related to diabetes or not i think those questions are key and pivotal along with other things like yeah, how many drugs are you taking uh, what are the what are the side effects are there consequences that cause person people to fall along with vitamin d deficiency i think those are really important to add into your repertoire when you're diving deep plain detective before we implement some of these intervention strategies that we're talking about or even assessments Right. I think you would be doing a patient a disservice if you didn't review past medical history, mm -hmm. medications, do they experience side effects. That way you can provide patient education right away to say whether take your time with your transfers, sit on the side of the bed, stand up and wait a second before you take those first initial set, uh, steps and also signs and symptoms if something is different than what you previously have experienced. Oh, Maria, there's a, there's a nursing tool assessment um, that I once learned about. This was many years ago. It's called the egress test. And the egress test is simply this. It's a pre-gate walking activity. If that person can stand and weight shift left to right, check. We could probably make a transfer. Then we move on to step two. There's three steps, by the way. We go into step two. Can you march in place? This would be with or without a walker, by the way. If you can do that, check. We move on to number three. Can you advance one foot and retreat? And can you do that bilaterally on left and both, or excuse me, left and right side? If you can do that, you can transfer safely without risk of fall, minimal risk of fall. That's something to consider too with those that are very high level um, and require significant assistance just from getting from point A to point B, for instance, from the bed to the chair. That's just one. I like that. That's just one thing to consider. That egress test, very, very helpful, especially for those of you that by me, that might be uh, in a nursing facility or an acute care setting, where that person ugh, is uh, is a heavy transfer, um, and that will help you to decide whether or not you need a second person. Um, and this goes without saying, you should always use a gate belt for someone who's very high level uh, and proper placement and utilization of that belt. But I just thought I'd mention that. It's something you said sparked that up in my mind. It's called the egress test. Very, very helpful, guys. No, I think that's a really good idea, especially for new students or, you know, they're fresh in those clinicals, going to like acute care. There's a lot of initial fear and hesitation to work independently with some of them. Oh, yeah. Because you just don't know... Sometimes things can change rapidly with changes of positions and you want to be prepared and that might just give you a steady confidence to check, check, all right, well, let's do this and let's get moving. Um, don't be afraid to ever ask for help, you know, get a nurse check, get a nurse, bed, body mechanics, all of those things, especially in acute care and gate belt. Definitely, Michael, that if you, if they're at any fall risk, no matter what discipline they're in, acute, outpatient, home health, you are putting a gate belt on them and you're protecting both yourself and the patient if something were to happen. Absolutely. Um, Maria, I think we got to giddy up and go here pretty soon. I know my lunch is over. <laughs> back to the, back to the grind. But you know, I think the big takeaways for all of us are going to include you know, identifying sarcopenia, 
the type of fall risks, the people that are at fall risks, um, both intrinsic and extrinsic, your assessment tools, and where to go from there. Mm-hmm. No, I completely agree. Um, if an assisted device is warranted, needed, make sure you identify that, size it, test drive it, see what's up. And uh, if this person's outside of your wheelhouse and you suspect something else is going on that's vestibular in nature or neurological, refer out and just work on the deficits. There's many ways to do that. Um, I just want to plug the Otago Balance and Exercise or Strengthening Program. It comes from the University of, o- of Otago in New Zealand. Um, very helpful. Um, pretty cookie cutter for the most part. There's 17 strength and balance exercises on it, including a walking program. They, they advocate working three times a week with it with those that are homebound or in outpatient. Um, very, very effective stuff, guys. Um, and yeah, there's so many different things out there. Um, just make sure that you uh, program appropriately for your patient. And then another wonderful resource that we have found, Maria, is um, go to the CDC website and check out their Steady Fall algorithm or program. Steady stands for Stopping, stopping elderly accidents, deaths, and injuries. So it's S-T-E-A-D-I, and you can find that on the CDC website or the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Guys, thank you so much. We've had a wonderful time. Um, I hope you're enjoying us. We love you. And um, Take care. Yeah. Help us get to 1,000. <laughs> yes, please, and we'll carry on. We'll see you next week or the week after. Take care, guys. Sounds good. Bye, everyone. Bye-bye.